Okay, let's stand up together and pray. We'll sing the, the Ascension uh, hymn. Do, do your best. And then I'll say, I'll say a prayer too. <clears throat> Thou hast ascended in glory, O Christ our God, and gladden thy disciples with the promise of the Holy Spirit, making them confident through the blessing that thou art the Son of God and deliverer of the world. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings. Implant in us also the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. And unto thee we ascribe glory together with thine unoriginate Father and thine all-holy, good and life-giving Spirit, now and ever, to ages of ages. Amen. Christ is in our midst. Amen. All right. It's good to see you all. People will say on occasion that it feels like we're getting crowded. You know, it's getting crowded in here. And because uh, we have, you know, I don't know, 130 or 140 people, you know, on a Sunday. And this space is actually meant for about like 120. 23 or something like this. Too small. So pray with me and that we can blow the wall out of this building and expand a little bit or something. But, um, but you should look up like Russian Orthodox church service or something like that. And you'll see the people are, especially when there are services in cathedrals with the bishop serving, they are back to front, packed in like sardines. Someone told me a story about how in a Russian church, they generally don't make huge buildings. Traditionally, you would have a large cathedral for, for special services and large gatherings. And then beyond the cathedral would be small parishes where a, a priest serves you know, a, a smaller community of people that he can know and spend time with. You can pastor a flock of 150, 200 people. Um, a cathedral that can hold a thousand people or, or something. You know, you can't pastor a community like that, really. So they have a kind of a special purpose, a big gathering place for special events. And so if you see those kinds of thing, it's not things, it's not like that's common, what church services are like all the time in those places. Um, because a block or two away, they'll have a little parish like ours with a priest serving. But someone told me about how they, they visited a Russian Orthodox church that was having a special service. Everyone was packed in. And you know, you want to go in and venerate the icons and light your candle, and you just can't. You can. You'll be kissing the back of someone's head or something. Or you'll be, cr crowds, can you crowd surf me to the front? And so, but basically what they did was they crowd surfed their candle to the front. They said, can you, can you, send this up so they can light my candle for me in front of the icon of Christ. And so they hand it to one person, they handed it up, you know, and then 30 people later, someone was lighting their candle up front. And I thought that was a really beautiful expression of, uh, you know, our faith and our life in, in Christ together. Rather than going, I can't, 
light my candle and talking about it for the next week. You know what I mean? I went there was so crowded and I wanted to light my candle. I finally got it right or something like that, you know, just handed for it was really a beautiful, a good lesson too. With God all things are possible. And the church is the the people of God. So with the people of God, with God working in us and through us, all things are possible, even lighting a candle in a crowded church. So um, I wanted to share, I've been reading a new book. This is the one I read the story from this morning. And it's called The Jesus Prayer for Those Living in the World. We're, we're going to talk about the Jesus Prayer a little later in our, um, in our uh, sessions, more specifically. But, of course, if you read anything about Orthodox spirituality, you hear about the practice of the Jesus Prayer. And the prayer rope, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And if you were here on St. Gregory Palamas Sunday during Great Lent, the, the um, second Sunday of Great Lent, uh, I usually capitalize on St. Gregory Palamas' teaching on um, the Jesus prayer. Um, he was a practitioner of what we call the prayer of the heart. And uh, I speak about that usually, or try to. But... Um, Anyway, um, this new book came out, and one of the, oh, well, my point was one of the things I like to say is that that kind of s- deeper spirituality, that idea of being a contemplative, you know, or be, even being ascetical in some way uh, in the Orthodox Church, um, has never been seen as something merely for the monastics. There are unique ways that they live out their monastic calling. There are things that that they can do that we can't because they have the time and space and structure for it. Like going to services every day. Morning and evening, no excuse. They don't have any excuse. They live in a monastery where they have services at least two times a day, sometimes more. And they don't have any excuse for missing their prayers. Well, neither do we, I would say. No real, really good one. Rarely do we have a good one. But so they have a way of fulfilling that kind of calling that vocation in a way that maybe you and I can't, but we also have things that we can do that they can't in the world. So there are different forms of asceticism, of spiritual struggle, but there's also a common form of asceticism. And at the core of it is drawing near to Christ and seeking, every Christian should seek to be a habitation of the Holy Spirit, you know, the dwelling place of Christ. And, and you can't, we can, we can if we want to, if we want to take that seriously. Elder Amphilochios of Patmos, who ministered to those in the world. Now we call him, he's a saint. He was recently uh, recognized to be a saint. He said, he has many beautiful sayings that I love, tender ones. And he said something like, my beloved in Christ, I would like nothing more than if someone someone were to open up your heart, that they would find only Christ there. And uh, that's not just a calling for the monks and nuns. That's for all of us. Um, and so the therapeutic method that we use, the way of purification and illumination, and dare I say that big word, theosis, you know, union with God, the, the process is the same, actually. It's just experienced differently for those in the world and those in a monastic setting. But there's a lot of overlap, actually. And so this book that just came out that I'm mentioning, and I'm going to 
show it on my screen too. It's called The Jesus Prayer for Those Living in the World by Father Stephanos Anagnostopoulos. Can you repeat that last name to me? Just kidding. Anagnostopoulos. Um, he, and he's a, a Greek priest. And he's known for his storytelling. He wrote a book that, that was originally published in English called Experiences During the Divine Liturgy, full of different miracles and events. And it was really terribly done. And it's not in publication right now because they're reworking it because um, it sounded like it was translated from another language with lots of typos and things. So they're working on smoothing it over and republishing it. But this one in the meantime came out the Jesus Prayer for Those Living in the World, and it's available from St. Anthony's Monastery. Um, if you look up St. Anthony's Monastery, Arizona, they have a really good bookstore. A lot of writings from the church fathers that are in little affordable paperback volumes from St. John of Damascus to St. John Chrysostom to contemporary authors. And so, uh, anyway, this is a, it's a lovely book. He basically talks about how amazing prayer is, that we should do it because we can do it. And then he tells little stories in between each of his reflections. So um, we definitely do not have enough books for everyone to, uh, to read. And I meant to, to try to, to make copies of the, the chapter, but... It's okay. I don't know how helpful it is to follow along anyway, but would you guys like to kind of pass them around and see if, you know, if every second or third or fourth person could take one? Um, we're going to be talking about baptism today. <laughs> and I have this book on Kindle. That's, why, that's what I bring up on my computer here. But I don't know... I don't even know if it's available on Kindle anymore. Can anyone tell us what page? 179. Okay. I will try to remember to print off. Every week I could just print 12 copies of the book, I mean, or the chapter. This is a fairly short chapter on holy baptism. And that's what we're talking about today. Holy baptism. And baptism is a sacrament in the church. There's discussion about there being seven sacraments. And I, I tend to disagree with that. And generally the consensus of the church is that there's no specific number of sacraments because ultimately life was created to be a sacrament. Everything that God created is a means of knowing him. For finite beings like you and I, created beings, we can come to know God through what he has created. And so you could say when the earth was created, it was created to be a sacrament and what is a sacrament? What's another word that we use for sacrament in the church? Mystery. Mystery. Thank you. Did you read ahead? No, you know that. Oh, it does say that. Mystery. Um, and, but what is a sacrament or a mystery? Does anyone kind of know, know what we mean when we say that? It's neat to say the word mystery. 
But what do we mean by that? Any thoughts? God is doing something. Uh, God is doing something. That's what I like to. That's how I like to describe sacraments. God is doing something. Um, I also I also like to define a sacrament as as a specific means by which God reveals Himself or expresses His grace. And what is what is the grace of God? Does anyone know what Saint Gregory Palamas and the Fathers of the Church say about the grace of God? What is it? Divine energy. It's the the uncreated energy of God. It's not something other than God. It's God Himself reaching us. We call it a mystery because how can the uncreated, that which is outside of space and time, reach into space and time and touch that which is created? A miracle takes place, and it's the miracle of God's love. But the fact that God could love us, even fallen ones, and we could experience His presence in some way without being destroyed. That's a great wonder and a mystery. And that's why we use the language of fear sometimes. It's a fearful thing, you know. It's, it's awesome, it's wonderful, but it's also frightening to encounter, to come into the presence of God himself. Because to encounter, to come into the presence of light is to be exposed by it, you know. Just like it's easy to, I mentioned this, I don't know if it was last week, it's easy to watch a church service online because when the priest turns around, he's not looking at you, he's looking at a camera. You can see him, but he can't see you. But if you're here and I can see you, I don't know, itching your nose, I wasn't picking father, you know, or whatever. But I, see, I can see you, you know what I mean? And there's, there's a confrontation in a way. There's a vulnerability that happens. Do we trust God enough to, to render ourselves vulnerable, to expose ourselves to Him so as to be touched by Him? And whether or not we are willing to do that really depends on who we believe God to be and what we believe about His grace. And whether or not we think it's necessary then. And uh, baptism is one of those mysteries, you know, those means by which God does something literally touches us, actually touches us. And so um, we do believe it's necessary. So that is a preface. Um, In holy baptism, our fallen nature is put to death, and we are raised from the water, purified from sin, to live a new life united with Christ our God. The last commandment that Christ gave his disciples before his ascension to heaven was, what we call the Great Commission. Go ye therefore, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's okay to cross yourself. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. The word, the word that's translated as world, um, sometimes translated as age too. Our Lord made baptism a central element of the Christian faith. How do we know, first and foremost, that baptism is important? Thank you. Yeah, you're right. That's exactly right. Christ was baptized. So, that he, and he said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. This underscores the fact that Christianity is not merely a philosophy or a set of Beliefs. You believe something and you do it. You know, doing flows from being. 
So it's not a mere philosophy because it's easy to, you can believe something and not be transformed by it. Well, the question is, if you believe it and, you're, and you're, you don't live in accordance with it, do you really believe it? Or are you an ideologue? You hear that word ideology or ideology these days. It means you, you, you believe that there's set a, a certain set of standards, that we, another word for it is hypocrisy, a certain set of rules or standards by which we should live, but they don't really necessarily apply to me. They don't necessarily apply to me. If, you don't, if you're not changed by what it is that you claim to believe in true, then do you, is true, then do you really believe that it's true? Probably not. Probably not. Or you can humbly admit I'm trying to, I'm, I'm learning, I'm changing. There's a transformation that's taking place in my life. To use the language of the scripture, a transfiguration, I hope, and I pray. I claim to believe something, and I'm starting to become conformed to the reality of what it is that I claim to believe in, and that's what we would consider the process of, to use a, Western, a term that's popularly used in the Western Christian world, sanctification. We still use that word in the Western, I mean in the Eastern Church, growth and holiness. Another way of putting it is being conformed to the likeness of Christ. So it's a life to be lived, and baptism is our entrance into this life, and it's very informative what happens. The beginning of your life, your true life, is being totally vulnerable and suffocated, you could say. Underneath the water. Are you safe when you're under there? As long as you have breath in your lungs, you know. But that breath is going to run out. So you have to trust that you'll be able to come forth from it. To what? To life that has been given to us from God himself. Baptism is our entrance into this life. Life in Christ. Before we discuss baptism in detail, however... A few words about the sacraments in general are in order. First, we should note the Greek word for sacrament is mysterion, from which we get the word mystery. In the Orthodox Church, the sacraments are usually referred to as the mysteries, and sometimes we refer to them as the holy mysteries. So if you hear someone, if someone says, I partook, partook of the holy mysteries, usually they're talking about the body and blood of Christ. It's often said that a sacrament is an outward sign of an invisible grace. But what exactly do we mean by grace? And how is this communicated to us through the mysteries? The church teaches that grace is more than just God's good favor toward man. It's the uncreated energy of God. When God bestows his grace upon man, he's bestowing the gift of himself. So we would say that grace is something other. It's not just a gift that God gives us. See, as outside of himself to make us feel like we're in, we're, we're favored children or something like that. He gives us himself. God's inner nature, his essence, you could say, is incommunicable. Created man can never come to know the inner nature of the uncreated God. If you can comprehend or encompass God with your rational mind, then that's not God. Nevertheless, God truly communicates his life to man. When man enters the grace of God, he encounters God himself. 
because man is a physical being, God communicates his grace to man through physical means. And that's really, that's kind of the message of the transfiguration. Do you remember that? So God, we say God came, you know, he did not come to abolish but to fulfill the law. Showing that obedience is the way of, of being healed from the tyranny of self-will and the passions. He humbled himself in every single way. And one of the ways he humbled himself was being encompassed by his own creation. How can the uncreated God be encompassed by water? Another act of great humility. But we also say that when he entered into that water of the Jordan, he blessed the creation. And at that point, I like to say then that the implication of the incarnation of God taking on physical flesh, he didn't become man to despise our humanity, but to heal it. Correct? He didn't walk, tread the earth to say, this ground is so terrible and cruddy. And I mean, he did say some strong words about what we've done on earth. Woe to you and so on. But... He blessed the earth by entering into his own creation. He validated that it is real, that it's significant, that it, that it matters. And so I like to say that the lesson that we learn from the baptism of Christ, we call theophany, is that matter matters. And so he uses a physical means to, to communicate his grace to us. Created matter becomes the vehicle through which God's presence reaches into our lives. The mysteries, therefore, are a way of participating in the life of the Holy Trinity, which Christ came to give mankind. And so one of the, one of the distinct characteristics of a sacrament, then, is that there's no such thing as an, you know, a digital sacrament or an ethereal one or a theoretical one. A sacrament always involves direct contact, touch. I have to touch you. When, when I touch you, when you, we were created for one another by God to be in communion with one another. And what validates that reality? When we reach out, we, we can reach out and physically touch each other. I can touch you. And it shows you that I'm here and you're here. It proves it. Brain and senses are working. If you're not hallucinating, but you wouldn't be if I were to come and grab your hand, right? And if God created us for one another, God communicates the reality of His life to us through one another, and specifically through, by He graciously reaches us and touches us in the sacraments. And so I can't do, for example, absolution over the phone. I can't absolve, you know, I can't perform the sacrament of absolution over the phone when I hear someone's confession. I can hear their confession over the phone, but then they have to go to a priest who can actually touch, touch them, who can touch their head. And when the priest lays his hand on the head, some of you have heard this, you know this, when he puts his hand and he's saying that Christ forgives you, at that moment, it's not the priest touching you, it's the reality of Christ's love reaching you his absolute and true forgiveness it's not a figment of your imagination that God is out there somewhere forgiving you he is here now with us 
Why? Because we're gathered in his name. There he is. And this is how he reveals himself. So a sacrament is also, I would like to say, something real. It's real. So that's a significant point for those of us who, who are not used to taking things as seriously or literally, you know, um, as we do in this way in the church. So baptism is the first of the mysteries, our introduction into the divine life. And holy baptism, past sins are remitted, our fallen nature is put to death, and we are raised to walk in newness of life, says St. Paul, and in the likeness of the Son of God. For this reason, the baptismal pool is known as the tomb and the womb. The old man is buried, and you're bo- but you're also born forth from it. Baptism begins with the exorcism of the candidate and his renunciation of Satan. While speaking with his disciples, the Lord made a very disturbing comment. He said, He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. There are only two choices in life, God or Satan. To accept one is to reject the other. In the, that early Christian writing, that post-apostolic writing called the Didache, or Didache, some people call it, it says, there are two ways of life, the way of life or the way of death. And it's a good question to ask us at any given time. Am I treading the path right now that is the way of life or the way of death? Yeah. Is the, um, before the person gets baptized, is that, a, is that a form of exorcism? It is an exorcism. Okay. Yeah. Are, are there some people that need an exorcism to get to become a catechumen that their life is so full of sin that, they, that uh, Satan is such and has a hold on them? Well, so, it's, so exorcism is a requirement, actually, for everyone to, to be received prior to baptism. Right. Um, but what, uh, what about someone who's being held back, possibly, by Satan? So, interesting, and I, I've, I, so we have to, we have, it's a sensitive topic, you know, the idea of, like, demonic influence or, or even possession. But in the early church... In the early days, when the rite, you know, of, of baptism and chrismation took place, there were um, exorcisms, renunciation of Satan, um, alignment with Christ, the reciting of the creed. This is what I believe now. This is who I am. This is my life, and then the baptism and the chrismation. And one of the early practices was that the prayers of exorcism could be read multiple times over people in their preparation. For, um, for baptism, I haven't I haven't had to do that yet, but I would I would if there if it seemed like there was a need for it. You mean multiple times right before the baptism? No, no, multiple times leading up to over the course of time. Like oh, okay. we're gonna do it. Maybe you're gonna be baptized. In you know, life of a yeah, do, while you're a catechumen, okay. that that could be read over you four times or weekly, or you know, depending on what's going on there. Um, yeah. I thought of coming uh, back to, uh, or at St. Eustine quote, or quote yeah. he talked about how essentially a human person has one question to answer in his lifetime, and it's either to become a friend of Christ or an enemy of God. Mm-hmm. Like, that's like the one question. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, all of those questions, like, who do men say that I, or who do you say that I am, like Christ said to Peter? That's like the question to everyone. Who do we, who we believe that Christ is, who we say that he is, um, and how we live subsequently, you know, is one of the most significant ones. Or, you know, one of my favorite times is when Christ was teaching about the Eucharist. And he said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And the people were confused and scattering. You know, this is a hard teaching. And when when Christ said, will you go also to his disciples? And where, where, where will we go? You have the words of life. There's nowhere else for us to go. That was their choice. And that's the choice that we want to make. And you're right. It's life or death. And there's, you know... We're trying to understand what that means. And so it's not, it's not so like starkly black or white, like you're, like you're in or out. It's either like you're in the process or you're not. Do you understand? It's not that legal approach. Because I'm in the process of following Christ. Christ, when he said, follow me, that's, that's the calling for all of us. So are we following him or not? If we're standing still, we're, we're not going where he's going. We're not seeking to walk in his footsteps, let alone if we're walking the other direction. So, okay, where did I leave off, you guys? This, um, okay, I think the scripture describes Satan as the god with a lowercase g, the god of this world, and as a roaring lion which walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And there is the reality of unseen warfare that takes place. That I would like to say, I would like to posit that, that you and I, most of us, we're not in, some of us maybe, but a lot of us aren't in tune with the unseen warfare as much because we're just dealing with our own thoughts all the time. You know, there's a classic saying from the, I believe from the life of St. Anthony, where St. Anthony hears a knock on his door and he opens the hut door. Do you remember this one? And uh, St. Anthony opens the door of his cell and Satan is standing there and Satan says, why is everyone going around blaming everything on me? I'm just leaving them to their own devices. So, um, but if we say that he's just leaving us to our own devices, then we can naively think that he's not there either, influencing us and his demons. And the reality is, is that this is taking place as well. And so you combat it, but not by psyching yourself out about it. Is that the devil? Or is that me? I don't know. It's not whether it's the devil influencing you or yourself and you're you're neurotic and psychic. It's are you following Christ? Am Am I stepping in the direction of Christ? And he will not fail you in helping you to know what step to take next so as to oppose whatever evil influence is taking place in your life whether it be yourself from your own bad habits and passions or um, you know waging war in some some little way on the the unseen um, enemies that are attacking that are bothering us they have no power by the way they have no power other than to get us to doubt ourselves, to doubt the existence of God, to question if what's right in front of me is real or true. But 
they, they have no, they actually have no authority, they just have influence to get us to question, to get us to doubt. And so if we fix our eyes on Christ, then, and follow him, um, then they're at, a, they're at a loss. It's like they can throw pebbles and stones at us, but they cannot, they have no authority over our lives. So from the fall of Adam to the coming of Christ, all mankind uh, lay under the sway of Satan. The first step in becoming Christian, a Christian is to be freed of the devil's power and to renounce this claim upon our lives. And so you hear in the service, Dost thou renounce Satan and all his angels and all his work and all his service and all his pride? Or we say pomp in our service, but same thing. After the renunciation of Satan, and you say, do you know what you say? Yeah, maybe. No, you say, I do renounce him. And I'll try to tell people, say it like you believe it. You know? Do you renounce Satan? I do renounce him. Okay, that's a little more believable. And I'm not saying you have to be all dramatic about it, but say it like you mean it. I do renounce him. Seriously. I believe is real, and I renounce him in his falsehood and his pride. One of my favorite stories about, well, you, many of you know, my, among my favorite books is called The Garden of the Holy Spirit which reads like a fairy tale to some because we're, we lack an attunement to the reality of unseen warfare. But Saint, it's about St. Yaakovos of um, Avia. And uh, he was so humble. And so there were times when the demons were trying to attack him and they said, we can't, we can't grab onto you, you're too humble. Believe it or not. They also hated the sign of the cross, and so they would try to grab his hand and prevent him from making the sign of the cross, or even saying, calling out for the intercessions of the Theotokos. He would cry out, Most holy Theotokos, and they would hit him in the face to try to keep him from articulating those words. So after the renunciation of Satan, the candidate recites the symbol of faith, the Nicene Creed. So what are we against? Pride, lies, and falsehood. What are we for? We say what we believe in, the symbol of faith, the Nicene Creed. The creed was written specifically for use at baptism and only later was inserted into the divine liturgy. This is why when we sing or recite the creed at the liturgy, we say, I believe, rather than we believe. Each time we do so, we are renewing our personal confession of faith, originally made at our baptism. Baptism is performed by triple immersion in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Why do we do that, that triple, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, it's to fulfill the Great Commission. We always baptize in the Trinitarian baptism. It's also in the book of Matthew what uh, Christ had commanded his disciples to and make disciples of all the nations. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's right. So baptism is performed by triple immersion in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the word baptism itself means immersion in Greek. So there's always, there's always been the understanding that you go underwater. I mean, you, you submerge because it is, it is an image of death and it is a death. 
you know. You're not completely submerged if you've got a little snorkel sticking out so that you can still breathe. You know what I mean? You have to go under. It's significant. And it's not just superstitious to say that. Now, if, if they go to do their baptism and like a little hair of their head doesn't get wet or something, I mean, what am I going to say? They're not sanctified or something? No, I'm not. But that's part of the reason why when, when they bow down, when they prostrate into the water, I scoop up if their back is sticking out or something, scoop the water over them, you know, to make sure they're just completely immersed. Baptism cannot take place without the invocation of the All-Holy Trinity. St. Nicholas Cavasilas, that wonderful commentator on the sacraments of the church, he said, even though it is by one single act of loving kindness that the Trinity has saved our race, yet each of the blessed persons is said to have contributed something of his own. It is the Father who is reconciled, the Son who reconciles, while the Holy Spirit is bestowed as a gift on those who have become his friends. And this book, The Life in Christ, is one that you can read in English by St. Nicholas, and is very, very good. The candidate is immersed three times in the commemoration of Christ's three-day burial. This underscores the fact that our baptism is our participation in the death of Christ. I don't, we don't make you stay underwater for three days. In the waters of baptism, our fallen human nature is put to death together with Christ, that we might also rise with him. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith and operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead, Colossians 2.12. I, I never took baptism seriously because it wasn't... It wasn't um, taken very seriously in my upbringing. It was considered to be an, an outward expression of an inward reality or something. Well, what, that, what does that even mean? Like, is there any inward reality that doesn't have an outward expression? I mean, that calls to mind many early Christian heresies, actually, that tried to separate the soul from the body. And, but we didn't know. Like, that's just what we believed. Because we didn't know what to do with baptism. And we knew that the Catholics had gotten it wrong and they were weird about it. And we didn't want to be. So we, had, so we made baptism an optional thing, though it was Trinitarian. So that's good. But it was optional and it was considered like a public proclamation of your faith, we call it. But not as, definitely not a sacrament. Like, and definitely not, believe it or not, as fundamentalist and biblical as we were, not necessary. It wasn't, who were we, what, had we not ever read the New Testament? Like, so I started reading the New Testament. Some of you know kind of the essence of my journey to orthodoxy. I was in college studying biblical studies, and I just realized that I was always reading the scripture through my own lens, getting out of it what I wanted and fulfilling my own presuppositions when I was reading the scripture. So if I didn't understand it or if it didn't speak to me, it wasn't for me. And... Uh, that's a bad form of um, biblical exegesis. It's not. It, it's, <laughs> it turns the Bible into a self-help manual. And so I decided I was going to read, focus on reading the, the New Testament and actually listen to what it's saying. I like to tell people, like, a lot of times we read the Bible. 
but actually we probably need, we need to be read by the Bible. What is being communicated to me through? What universal truth? What is God saying? And when I read that, I realized that baptism is really important. Look up the word baptism, baptized, baptized, you know what I mean, in the scripture. And you'll start to see some very, very striking things that make it seem like it's not optional. And I went, whoa, this is like a bomb went off in my life. Die with Christ, arise with him. Yikes. I better take my baptismal identity seriously, even though we would never say anything like that in my upbringing. But I started having thoughts like that. It really transformed my perspective. You literally, truly die and arise with him. Does anyone know that catchy little saying that is said to be to be over one of the entryways to a, a monastery in Mount Athos about death. You know it? Yeah, I think so. If you die before you die. Yeah? You got the first part? You don't die. Just die before you die. If you die before you die, then you won't die when you die. <laughs> That's a mind bender, you know, but... If you die, but if you if you read it through with an orthodox perspective and an understand even just a biblical New Testament biblical perspective, it makes sense. If you die before you die, then you won't die when you die. We must remember that the operative element here is the power of the death of Christ and not our own effort. It's us, as I like to say about the whole of the Christian life, it's us participating in what God is doing. It's not the works of men. It's nothing vain or outward, merely outward. It's real. So, St. Carol of Jerusalem stressed this point. He said, O strange and inconceivable thing, we did not really, really die, but we were not really buried, like in a grave in the dirt. We were not really crucified and raised again, but our Imitation was in, but in a figure, while our salvation is in reality. Christ was actually crucified and actually buried and truly rose again. And all those things that have been vouchsafed to us, granted to us, that we by imitation communicating his sufferings might gain salvation in reality. This point is also emphasized by the fact that the baptismal formula is in the third person. The priest does not say, I baptize thee, but the servant of God is baptized. The servant of God, Gregorios, is baptized in the name of the Father. Hold your breath, go under. Come up, take a breath. And of the Son, under, back up, take a breath. And of the Holy Spirit, thrice immersed. Baptism is not an act that we or even the priest performs, but it is an act of God. It's God who died in the flesh and rose again for our salvation. And God unites us to himself through our sacramental participation in his sufferings. Um, I recently heard, and I don't know what came of it. You may have heard, heard this in the news. I barely, I'm barely in tune with what's all the details of what's going on in the world, but I hear things here and there. And um, a Roman Catholic priest had been performing baptisms for how long? 20 years or something? 30 years? 
And instead of saying, their formula is, I baptize you. And all those years he said, we baptize you. Because he didn't want to say, like, it was me. It's all of us. Like, a collective. And they said, they have this. If you really get into the Roman Catholic theology, everything is very rational and scientific. So you don't, you don't say we, because Christ isn't a we, Christ is a he. And so you say, when you're performing a sacrament as a Roman Catholic priest, you're serving, they call it en persona Christi. You're serving as or in the person of Christ. You're, you are manifesting Christ there. And so when you say I, you're saying it's Christ who's acting on this person to affect the sacrament. And so the spiritual court or whatever ruled that every baptism that he had done for all those decades was invalid because he is the wrong formula. And there was even a priest as well that was baptized under that formula and he had to be reordained as a priest. Isn't that wild? See, I never followed up to, to hear yeah, what... Yeah, it, it was crazy. I just remember it, thinking, mm-hmm. what a debacle. Because it, 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 just, it, just, it wasn't just one church, that it was many. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not um, superstitious like that. I mean, like, if I, like, if I said the wrong name, you know, on accident, it wouldn't mean that, you know, somehow you're not who you are. Or if I mispronounce a word or accidentally say the wrong word, it doesn't mean the sacrament is void or invalid. Um, I mean... Plus, they're getting baptized in the Catholic Church where, where they don't do immersion. And so we don't worry. I mean, we don't worry about the, the, what you say, the effectuality of sacraments outside of orthodoxy. We would just say if, if and when someone decides to become orthodox, then they need to f- have a full initiation into the church through having what we believe are the true, the, the true and the fullest experience of the sacraments. And that's what we've been instructed. We baptize, we do the full, the, the baptism for those who are being received into the church. But also, I think on the same topic, um, yeah. I think in their mass too, if they like, like mispronounce something or they get something out of order, they have to restart completely. Really? Yeah. I've never, yeah, I haven't heard that. So yeah, like on, on the same topic. Of I'd like be in trouble. Being, you know? like, really, <laughs> like really like, yeah. kind of like, It feels lifeless when it's like that, like a, like a formula. Yeah. You know. Um, it's, their, it's like their ethos, basically. It is their ethos. That's right, and that's a good way of putting it. And that is foreign to the Orthodox ethos. Yeah. Um, I've seen people like not take communion. They feel like the priest. Oh, like this. Oh, yeah. This mass might not be valid it's today. Invalid, yeah. Mm. yeah. Wow. What a, what a trip. That's why, I mean, in the church, the sacraments are greater than we are. And we don't try to say, even though, like, and I heard another story, and I, I can't confirm it, but of a, a priest, a Catholic priest, like, walking into a bakery and saying, having a conversation about the Mass or something, and he said the words of institution, like, make this bread the body, the body of Christ and they said somehow all the bread then was deemed as being um, consecrated and so the church had to purchase all the bread in that store because <laughs> oh, so you know you hear crazy things 
And we don't, honestly, I mean, we have the, the epiclesis, it's called the calling down of the Holy Spirit, and we say, make this bread, make this wine, changing them by the Holy Spirit. But we don't try to say, like, exactly how and when. when. We just say that it happens in the church. It's a, it's a mystery. It's real. To call it a mystery is not to, to, to dilute the truth, but it's to say God does it, you know, and I'm not God. It's one of my favorite things to say. Like, I'm not God. I trust God. So I just want to participate in what he's doing. So inasmuch as our fallen nature dies with Christ in baptism, I'm going to check our time. How are we doing? Okay, 120. Um, so we are freed from the ancestral sin inherited from our forefather, Adam. In the Orthodox Church, the original sin is frequently referred to as the ancestral sin. Our Holy Fathers do not understand that uh, this to mean that we inherited the, the guilt for Adam's transgression. And that's another difference between Orthodox and Roman Catholicism, is that they believe from the moment of conception you, you, you are conceived having inherited the guilt of Adam. So you're, you're guilty of, um, you share, you have a share in Adam's guilt, the guilt of his transgression. We say that we inherit an inclination to sin to the point that it is much easier for us to sin than not to. Our life is dominated by the passions. And so we use the language oftentimes of like it being an illness or a condition. Most of all, however, the ancestral sin refers to man's enslavement to corruption and death. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, St. Paul says, and by death, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Our enslavement to the passions are but proof of our ultimate bondage to the power of death. St. Paul lamented, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? We've seen that when Christ died, his most pure soul descended into the depths of Hades to destroy the power of death forever. In baptism, we too descend with Christ so that we might share in his victory. And we have St. Paul again. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, that is what? What's the likeness of his death? Baptism. Baptism. If we've been, been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also in the we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Death is the only solution to the problem of the the reign of sin and. The, I, you know, I, it, I was preparing a homily once, and, I, and it really struck me that this, the world is, we're fixated on a couple of things, avoiding death, but also we have all these indications that we know that death is the only solution. I mean, people feel like the only way out to solve their problem. Abort the baby. Because I don't want it, or why would I bring something so innocent and to such a terrible world or something like that, okay? You become a, you know, you're taking the life of an innocent one, but built on this presupposition that death is the only way out. Or suicide. 
Death is the only escape for me from this corruption. And there's a, there's a truth to that. Euthanasia, you know, an end to this suffering, this pain and this sorrow. But the solution offered to us is death, but it's not a self-imposed finite one, you know what I mean? It's the one that, it's a death which is, that leads unto life, not a death which leads unto self-condemnation. In baptism, then our fallen nature, okay, did I already read that? No. Ah, yeah. So in baptism, then our fallen nature is put to death and our sins, both ancestral and actual, are forgiven. As we recite in the creed, I confess one baptism for the remission of sins. We die with Christ and our sins are forgiven so that we might share in his life. From the water, therefore, we emerge reborn as true children of our heavenly Father. At the selfsame moment ye died and were born, and the water of salvation was at once your grave and your mother, says St. Kirill of Jerusalem. Once a leader of the Jews named Nicodemus came to Christ for spiritual nourishment, our Lord told him, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You start understanding, like you read something like that, and it's like, what he's talking about baptism. And Nicodemus was understandably confused by this strange saying. You know, what did he say? Surely a man cannot go back into his mother's womb, you know. Um, so then Christ explained, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, baptism and chrismation, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of spirit is spirit. Now, what happens when you hear that? First of all, you and I don't want to be bound by any kind of necessity. We want to, have, we want to live according to the delusion that we're free. But that leads to an insanity in the tyranny of self-will. The idea that you are some kind of auton autonomous being having life separate from others or God. I talked about that a little bit today in, in the homily. And so we want to say, well, do I really have to be baptized to be saved? To get to heaven? Do I really have to? Well, depends on what you believe. You know, do you believe, do, do you take Christ at his word when he says things like this? And then we want to say, well, what about the person who wasn't baptized? And I'm going to say, no, what about you? Maybe Christ will come out and baptize them if they want to be, if they didn't have the chance on earth. We totally trust God. We don't think he's going to laugh at someone and say, oh, sorry, you know. You could have been baptized had you heard of baptism, therefore you're not getting into the kingdom. When you and I read this and we hear it, then we have to, then that's the, then the, it's, it hits us square at the center of our being and, and then it, it leaves us, Am I? You know, should I? Do I believe this is true? You know? What do you think, in Kirk? Um, so baptism of the Holy Spirit happens at the same time. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. It does now. I mean, you hear in the book of Acts that there are people who receive the baptism of John, but, not the, you know, they, but they didn't receive the Holy Spirit, and so the apostles laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And now that's built into the same 
service and the chrismation, which we'll talk about actually in another session. Yeah, some, but some people have them. They look at the Bible and they say, oh, that happened separately there. Yeah. Now it happens separately. It happens during the, at the same time, but they are two separate sacraments actually. Baptism and chrismation, we call it, which is the bestowal of the Holy Spirit. And that's not to say, like, people would, would say, like, I feel like God's been I, in my life before I was Orthodox. It's like, yeah, God is everywhere. I felt his breath. I felt, and a lot of times, too, we think, oh, the Holy Spirit said this to me. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's just you finally cued into the reality of your conscience, that God has given you a conscience, you know. It may not be the Holy Spirit saying, hey, don't do that. It may be the tools that God has given you. But the, God can speak to and guide whom he, whom he will, you know. So again, the question isn't like, well, what about them? It's no, what about me, you know. We trust that God desires that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And we absolutely believe that that everyone will have the opportunity to ultimately to accept God, to be to enter into the kingdom of God for all of eternity or reject. That's the ultimate act of freedom. Can I ask a question, Father? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I've always had difficulty with this idea of God just leaving people in the lurch if they didn't go through some technical yeah. like form of ritual or something like that. Yeah. Well, and I mean, and that's not a gamble we take ourselves because we can't because we can't claim ignorance. But but we can say that surely there are people who who have not heard the name of Christ yet. And so they will encounter him. And what will happen there? Like that's that's another mystery. They will encounter the God of love and they will do. Is there is there a part of the Bible that says that? Definitively, that we you cannot that once you're dead, that's it. You can't encounter God after. And again, I just think about when it talks about Christ going down into Hades. And right, they got a chance after death. It, that's what it would seem to me. Yeah. Um, and that's a that's that that's, that, really that's an interesting life. question that has actually it has layers to it. Because it's you know why are you asking that question? So that, so that you can delay your repentance until after you die and then say, God, I'm so, so, ah, I planned for this. Like, I knew that I would have one more chance. You know what I mean? So there's the psychological element that delays my repentance or my, my following God. There's the, the kind of compassionate one that says, what of people who 
who didn't hear. I mean, what? And we we would say we we don't we we do not presume that they're just merely hellbound. Mm, too bad, you know. Well, God elect pre, you know, He elected them to go to hell. Then we would never say that as Orthodox. Um, it it rids them of their free will. And then there's the, you know, there's the the theological too. I mean, there's the the psychological and theological kind of blend together, but. Is there repentance after death? I mean, technically the church would, would say to anyone who's asking that question, no, do it now. Yeah, of course. You know, do, no, don't wait. Like, because here you and I are having this conversation. So that forces the, the question. So that you and I are without excuse in that regard. Um, but... Yeah. Or not by their own choice, but you know, any any children that die without conversion. Yeah, you say. exactly. Yeah. And a lot of them never been baptized. Mm-hmm. Them, you know, well, and we consider that a tragedy. Correct. So then I always, you know, keep on pondering, and then the more the more I, you know, read, and the more I, then I realize that's something that unfortunately I would never get. Question from all I know is I can trust that God. Yeah. Um, there is something beyond my comprehension yeah. because God would um, even to to say, for example, somebody in another, in another country adults that never heard about Jesus and mm-hmm. never know about Jesus, it will be kind of in the same, you know, yeah. not because they didn't want to, or because they just never got a chance to in the middle forest or somewhere mm-hmm. try it somewhere. And I always figure it out, oh, I mean, to my own comprehension, if I begin to, you know, ponder so much into that, it's just, you know, just ponder that God has a means to bring salvation Mm -hmm. to those children and to those individuals out of the reach of the knowledge of God or Jesus. And that somehow... Like he did to the criminal that was crucified yeah. next to him at the last minute when he said, "Today you will be with me in paradise." Yeah. Um, God has yeah. a means for everything. We we entrust God with having that authority. I'll let God make that decision. Exactly. You know, thank God, thank God for that. And yeah. but there are people like because of their view of God, who God is. And the implications of that belief, like if they, like a Catholic, a, a traditional Catholic would believe that, that a baby who has been conceived is in sin, not in Christ, but in sin, until they're baptized and then they're in Christ. But then they would be, they would be hellbound if they were aborted, for example. See, that was See and the church doesn't, the Orthodox Church does not believe that. That was when, when you, know, you know, growing up Catholic and going to Catholic school and going through the knowledge, that was one of my my arguments with mm-hmm. the bishop and yep. leaving Catholicism because of the argument on innocent yep. babies, aborted babies, or innocent babies that died before baptism. It just seems totally and ruthless to, me, it just seemed beyond to believe that. But it's because they have a view of God that we would say is a flawed view of God. And then everything trickles down from that. Yeah, and I, and I every time, you know, yeah. after I left the 
Catholic Church, I pray for my forgiveness for, for, for misunderstanding what they were trying to tell me, what the church was trying to teach in regards to, to you know, children dead mm -hmm. before baptism. Because I just didn't believe that I tried mm -hmm. to understand it their way, and yeah. it, it was just I continued. Well, you went head to head with the bishop, didn't you? I continued. I yeah. continued to ask God for forgiveness. I don't, I don't know if you guys knew that Maria was a novice and a, a Roman Catholic um, novice to become a nun. And I continued to ask God for forgiveness for you know my. So who knew way way back when that? See, becoming Orthodox would be the fulfillment of all of, all of that. <laughs> and in God's perfect timing for that. So, anyway, so, um, baptism, continuing on, is our birth of water and of the Spirit. All those who have been rightly baptized in the name of the Holy Trinity have been born again. Once again, we must stress that this new birth is not of our doing, but it is the work of God. And that's so, just it's important for us. With all the different thoughts and influences flying around to reiterate that. It is God alone who bestows the gift of life upon his children. Who emerge purified from the baptismal waters. Of course, having been granted new life in Christ, it's up to us to live in accordance with it. Nevertheless, it is God who first bestows the gift the new birth is the result of neither our efforts nor of any personal decision. It's not the result of, I decide to be saved, therefore I am saved. It's that God accepts that, you know, he, he accepts the prodigal son that, you, that we are. It's not that the prodigal son decided to return, that is a part of it. But it's that the father received him back. So it's always an accomplishment of God. It's the result of the grace of God imparted to us in the mystery of holy baptism. We hear in John 1, But as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. After baptism, the newly illumined servant of God is clothed in a white robe, the robe of righteousness. Our nakedness is covered by the righteousness of God as we prepare to lead our new life in communion with the All-Holy Trinity. And we hear um, the hymn, the newly illumined. Um, oh, yeah, and they continue to wear their robes in our, in our community for, for 40 days. And the, this, this hymn that they have here, we sing it a little different. Grant unto me the robe of light, for you clothe yourself with light, O most merciful Christ our God. We do that um, right after the baptism. We sing it repeatedly while they're, while they're changing their, out of their wet clothes and putting, the, putting their baptismal garments on. Great, therefore, is the mystery of our salvation, and great are the benefits bestowed upon us in holy baptism, we die to a world of sin and death and rise to walk in the immortal life of God himself, having emerged from the waters, reborn, and having been clothed with the garment of salvation. We are ready to receive within us the Holy Spirit to become living temples of God. Um, 
Okay, I have notes from myself. Discuss the general format of the service, services of initiation. Discuss how children are received into the community. Okay. Um, so, um, <clears throat> if you haven't been to our Becoming an Orthodox Christian page on our website, um, that's a, a helpful resource. It can be a, it's a lot of information. So go back more than once because there's a lot of info, especially if you're very new to Orthodoxy. You might say, I don't even know what all this stuff is. But it's a detailed list of things that you can be working on as you're considering becoming Orthodox or once you've decided to become Orthodox. We have a, a season in our journey to Orthodoxy which we call being an inquirer. That's not a, it's, it's not a, an ecclesiastical term. It's just a functional one that we use when you're, when you're exploring orthodoxy. It's like dating, you know. Do I like you? I'm getting to know you. Do I, am I really, do I want to be in a committed relationship with you? You know, you're exploring those things as, as an inquirer. You know, when you're dating someone, you go hiking with them. You have dinner together. You might even see what their place looks like, you know. There's a level of intimacy, but there's a... It's withheld, hopefully, in this day and age. We get everything in reverse. Anyway, um, we take our time, too. If you're going to be an Orthodox Christian for the rest of your life, which is, which is the goal, you know, it's not just a denominational uh, shift to the next bet, best one until you find an even better one, I mean, as that priest that I first met with when I decided to become Orthodox, as he told me, Orthodoxy is a last stop. So um, we want to take our time. Someone recently told me, um, you're the first pastor who ever told me to slow down. Father, that's because we want it to be real and not just an infatuation. Not just strike while the iron is hot. Keep the iron hot. What does it mean if, the, if I don't strike while the iron's hot and the iron cools? You know, like, it needs to be in the fire longer. You know? So the warming of that cold metal, you know, that, that you and I are, it takes time. And to sustain the, the warmth takes more time. And so you inquire for a while, for some time, months, many months. It takes at least, you know, a year or, there, or thereabouts. Sometimes more, sometimes a little bit less, depending on what's going on in your life and where you're at. But after being an inquirer for some time, then you, you decide, I'm done with dating. I want to become engaged. I want to become engaged to the church. And that's what becoming a catechumen is. You have, you have no other love. Your eye is not wandering anymore. You know, you've made a commitment to, to unite yourself to Christ in his church. And so it's a time for intensifying your, your effort, trying, starting to really make changes in your life to do what I call connecting the dots. Take what we do here and use that as the model for your life at home. What do you do when you come here? You venerate the icons, you make the sign of the cross, you say prayers, you chant the hymns, that, all of that can be done in some way at home. 
That's why we sing those hymns like for the feast days so many times so that you can, they can get stuck in your head and you can keep singing them all week. Thou hast ascended in glory, O Christ our God. It takes a couple years sometimes. You know, of the world. Okay, I got the, you get the last line, you know. Okay, well give yourself some time on that. But, but say prayers. Take up the prayer book, you know, and read the Psalms. Say the Jesus prayer. Set up your icons, and like we were talking about, venerate, venerate your icons at home. We, we don't want it to be, as I heard one commentator say, um, more books, less reading, more icons, less praying. It's not about having pious decorations, like a great theological library like mine, with many books that I have not yet read while I'm still buying more. But I am always reading there's a little bit of a justification, but not a great one. Um, but we want it to be real and true. And that means we, we, we're trying to live it. But will you ever get it right? Not really. Because there's, it's, there's no like end. When we think about getting something right, we're thinking of it being kind of static. Like, I finally arrived. Okay, there's nothing else to do, nowhere else to... When you get it right, it just means you finally submitted to the fact that you're learning and growing and changing constantly. And Christ is completing, he's working on bringing to completion the work that he started in you. In you. Father Jeremiah, yeah. I, always, I always thinking, when I think I get it right, that means it's just the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. have to start from it. That's right, yeah. Humble yourself, you know, in that way. And so then you become a catechumen and... The length, you, someone could be a catechumen for a day or for a moment. So there's not a particular length, a specific length of time. You know, historically it would have been like 40 days, the 40 days of Great Lent leading up to Pascha. Well, Great Lent, and then you got Holy Week. And, uh, but the time leading up to Lent would be, you know, just over a month, someone would be a catechumen. Um, but now we'll have catechumens who are, you know, who are catechumens for um, usually at least a month or so. But sometimes they'll have a longer engagement too, like you guys, you know. Um, I have, you know, we're going to baptize some people in um, this month on the 18th, and then we'll have another crop, I like to call them, another group baptized in um, August. So... Um, and if you you know if you're thinking about when and how you know the timing of everything, you can have that conversation with me. And don't don't ever feel bad. And if I tell you, wait, you know, it'll happen. It'll come. Then just trust me with that. And if you if you're ever insecure about where you're at, if you're on the right path, doing the right things, or are you going to tell us when to become catechumens, or do we ask you, or when we are ready, or yeah, it's a little bit of both. Um, a little bit of both as we get to know each other more. So we have to be intentional in that regard. And then, uh, and then after being a catechumen, you know, we, we for some time, we're, you're received into the church. And by that time, you know, you should have a, a, pretty, a pretty regular rhythm of daily prayer. Um, you should have something like a prayer corner, you know, set up, a place where you can go to, to pray, set aside in your home. 
It's a little extension of the church, you know, your home altar. St. John Chrysostom calls the Christian home a domestic church. So light, we light candles or we, you know, we have the vigil lamp, the oil lamp going, and we light incense sometimes. And um, it's really wonderful to walk I, into a home where someone's been praying or burning incense, and it's like, it smells like church in here. That's cool. Um, and um, how children are received in the church. So children are received after their, um, when, when babies are born into the community. Um, on the first day, ideally the day that the child is born, we start praying for them. And so the priest will come and do a brief visit and pray for the child, called first day prayers. And then on the eighth day, after the, usually they're home by then, but on the eighth day, the priest will come and visit and say eighth day, which are called naming prayers. Technically, the priest can give the child a name, but most of the time it's legally been um, decided at that time. And then on, on the 40th day, the churching of the mother, the return to church takes place. And around that time, the child is baptized, and we do baptize babies because you can't become a communicant of the holy mysteries until you're a Christian. And we understand that, again, God is doing something that we're participating in. And just like we would not deprive our children of anything that's good, teaching, like how to, how to, how to speak, how to write, how to eat and drink, we... we cultivate them in the faith and we make them initiates into the church as well right away we don't wait until they're seven years old or whatever it may be so that they have the right of initiation or something like that we we baptize them and then we commune the babies right away even before they're eating solid foods you know we'll take a little bit of the spoon you know dip dip it in the chalice and then it's one of the sweetest moments as a priest as a baby's trying to figure, learning how to figure out what to do with the spoon and stuff. And you just kind of barely touch their lips and they kind of lick it. And then, and then, and then one day, then a couple months in, then they start going, they start demanding it, sucking it in, you know, mm, oh, now you know what to do with it. And then they can start actually taking a little substance too. Um, but we fully initiate them into the church. Um, from the time that they're they're babies, because they're full persons, they're full human beings, you know, from the mo moment of conception. So we bring them into the church fully in that way. But then it's our responsibility, and it's their decision, you know, as they grow, if they want to continue to follow Christ. We, I mean, we, we it's our responsibility as a community and as parents to rear our children in the faith and to support them and pray for them too, pray for the children in our communities. Yeah. I was going to say, or make a comment on the churching. I think that's such a special, like, little service. Mm -hmm. um, how you, like, bring in the baby, like, into the altar. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. So, Have you ever seen it? No. Yeah. No? Was baby had some George Yeah, he was. Yeah, we try to do it on Sunday morning, too. Yeah. So I'll meet the, the mom and the baby at the threshold, and I'll say some prayers with them. And then I, I, she hands the baby to me because it represents her handing the baby to the church, to Christ, you know. And so I, I carry them in and um, I say different lines from the Psalms. One of them is really especially um, 
do I want to say, humorous or apt? In the middle of the church, I will sing thy praises. And sometimes the baby's going, and so, you know, everyone kind of giggles at that one. But um, I bring the, the baby in, and then I go bring them into the sanctuary. Um, it's their, you know, they're being initiated into the community, into the church, and then bring the baby out. And in some traditions, and Father James used to do this, and I don't, it's not necessary, but they would put, lay the baby on the ground and then say, like St. Simeon, when he received Christ in the temple, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. And, um, and then the mom would come and pick the baby up off of the ground. But I like, to hand the, I like to hand the baby over to the mom. I don't know, lay them on a tile floor or something. So. Um, but if you ever see that, don't be scandalized. Unless, he, unless the priest is rough, then he needs a talking to. Um... So, let's see. Okay, that's the end of that section. What time is it, you guys? <gasps> we have seven minutes. Can we talk about the baptism of tears? I don't know if we have time for that. In seven minutes? Six minutes, no. I don't think you read the quotes. Oh, yeah, I didn't read it. Okay, we can read the quotes, and then maybe I'll just wrap up, and then we'll do the next, um, that little special study on the baptism of tears. Um, I'll read these. The fathers speak. It is for us the St. Bede. It is for us, dearly beloved brothers, for us that these mysteries were celebrated. For by the most sacred bathing of his body, the Lord dedicated for us the bath of baptism. He was baptized and he's shown us the way. And he also pointed out to us that after the reception of baptism, the riot of entry into heaven is accessible to us and the Holy Spirit is given to us. Next we have St. Nicholas Cavasulas from the life in Christ. As soon as he has thrice emerged from the water after being submerged therein during the invocation of the Trinity, he who has been initiated receives all that he seeks he is born and receives form by that birth, birth which is of the day which David mentions. He receives the noble seal and possesses all the happiness which he has sought. He who once was darkness becomes light. He who once was nothing now has existence. He who enters God's household and is like a son who has been adopted from the dungeon and the utmost slavery. He is led to the royal throne. So this water destroys the one life and brings the other into the open. It drowns the old man and raises up the new. For this cause, we here invoke the Creator, since what takes place here is a beginning of life and a second creation, which is far better than the first. The image is delineated more accurately than before, and the statute is molded more clearly according to the divine pattern. Wherefore, the archetype must needs be the more perfectly set forth. And last, last, blessed Augustine, we all know that if one baptized in infancy does not believe when he comes to the years of discretion, 
and does not keep himself from lawless desires, then he will have no profit from the gift he received as a baby. And that's an interesting one because um, the question is like, you know, what is the responsibility of them if, if, you know, if salvation was chosen for them or something? Um, no, I mean, salvation is not just an event. You know, it's a life. It's a way. And so um, I heard one priest say, say so beautifully, he gave a long, long talk about the spiritual life, and he called it um, something like uh, cultivating the seed within know, the seed that is plant that has been planted in baptism. The seed within that we have the choice to either neglect or cultivate. The seed which can bring forth fruits, the fruits of the Holy Spirit in our life, or they can just sit there in the soil forever. What we decide to do with it. I hope if any of you choose um, baptism and decide to become Orthodox, that you follow up with that choice by cultivating that seed in your life and, you know, bearing fruit. And who is it that really bears the fruit? It's always Christ. There's nothing that we have that isn't His, that isn't from Him and of Him, if it's real and if it's good and if it's true. So I hope that we... May God fulfill that in all of our lives, in mine and in yours, by the grace of His Holy Spirit in our lives. So let's end there. We'll sing one more time the Ascension Hymn, and then I'll let you go. Thou hast ascended in glory, O Christ our God, and gladden thy disciples with the promise of the Holy Spirit making them confident through the blessing that Thou art the Son of God and Deliverer of the world. Okay, well, God bless you. Well, go in peace. Thank you so much for being here today.